On the tee from Northern Ireland, Rory McIlroy. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. I'm Chris Solomon, joined by a special guest today, four-time major champion, reigning FedEx Cup champion, number two ranked player in the, ro- in the world, Rory McElroy. Rory, what's going on in your world today? Um, not a whole lot's going on in my world today. I think this is actually the highlight of it. So, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, I've got a week off and just sort of hanging out in Dubai and Doing a little bit of practice here and there, but uh, yeah, just enjoying a bit of downtime. I think I remember reading somewhere where maybe it was two years ago or last year, you said you had calculated that you had something like 18 days off in a year. So ha- is that is that accurate to say you have like 18 obligation-free days during out of 365 during a year? Um. I think last year um, it was. I think that was what that was what we calculated. Um, and I sort of looked at that and I said, "Geez, I need to, I need to have a bit a bit more time to myself, and I need to go and do other things." And um, you know, obviously, we live in this world where you know your your job, as it were, as a golfer, is your life. You know, so you're always doing something that is you know connected to that, whether it's a media obligation or a sponsor obligation or practice or play or travel or whatever so um i've sort of made it you know a real priority for me to to get that downtime because i feel like it's really important for me and it helps me be better on the course and it helps me be more balanced and you know i think it can only be a good thing but yeah there was definitely a couple of years there where you know there there wasn't a lot of a lot of downtime and not a lot of free time where, where i could just go and do whatever i wanted I can imagine playing a full-time schedule basically on two different tours and continents and would contribute to that. So like for most people when they get time off, they want to, you know, take a vacation, take a holiday, travel somewhere. You're on the road so much for your job per se. Do you crave just like time at home or time just on the couch doing absolutely nothing or what do you like to do with your time off? Yeah, I do. Um yeah, home. Home is what, you know, everyone keeps saying to me, you know, what, where you know, where are you going to go in the off-season or what are you going to do? I say, I just want to go home. You know, that's, and that's really been the culmination of the last few years. I mean, because I've played a global schedule and played the tours, um, you know, for example, all the guys that live down in Jupiter, you know, I, I saw them last week in China and they're like, oh, when you when are you going to be back in Jupiter? I said, I'm not going to be back there until the middle of February. Wow. You know, they're all going home next week and, and I'm sort of, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here in Dubai, and 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 then I, I go back home to Northern Ireland for for Christmas, New Year. But then I'm, you know, back out to Dubai and South Africa and the Middle East, and so you know, there's a, there's a lot of travel. But you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy that side of it. Uh, I enjoy being a, a global player. I don't think that's something that's going to change for the foreseeable future. But um, it, it really makes the time that you have at home that much better and more cherished and. Um, you know, even, you know, something like, you know, people are asking us, where are we going to go on honeymoon next year when we get married? And, and we're sort of like, it'd be nice to just go home for a week. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you, I mean, I guess it's, it's a main part of your job and your role as a professional athlete, but 
with traveling so much, do you ever find it hard to maintain like a decent diet and like a regular fitness schedule? Like you have so many travel days. Um, do you, is that something like you schedule out specifically day by day or how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, you have to, I think the more that I've, um, I think the, 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 the working outside of it is, is easier than the diet. Um, when you're on the road so much and you know this because you travel a lot, it's, you know, you're on the road and you're basically just eating stuff to, it's not really for nutrition. It's just that you feel hungry and it doesn't matter what it is, you'll eat it. And I think that's the that's the hard thing is, is being really disciplined in that area. But it's all, I always find it easier to carve time out to go to the gym for an hour a day or whatever it may be. And um, a lot of that stuff, especially during the season, is is maintenance so that you know my back doesn't feel bad or make sure that my you know ankle's still okay or, or whatever it may be. So um, a lot of that stuff is maintenance and knowing that at least if I get in there for forty five minutes to an hour a day. You know, I'm going to feel better about myself, you know, teeing it up the next day. All right. Well, transitioning here a little bit, you played in the HSBC Championship last week in China. Uh, the big news last week was that you put a new driver in Fairway Woods in the bag. Uh, what? How would you evaluate your first week with the new clubs in the bag? Did it feel like a really significant change, or was it kind of once you got out there, it all kind of felt pretty normal? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, it was a, it was a big change. I think you know with. With everything that's going on in the in the in the golf world and the golf business right now, especially with um, with my sponsor Nike pulling out of, of making golf equipment, um, it's given me the freedom to to try you know other things that are on the market that I haven't been able to try over the last few years. Not that I've really wanted to in any way, but you know it's it's nice to to have a little look around. And I mean, I wasn't you know I, I really wasn't planning on putting anything new into my bag um, until next season really um but i i tried you know i tried these these new woods out um you know like last week before going to china and they they were you know they were going well in practice the the numbers look good on track man um so i said why not you know it's it's the end of the season even though there is still a little bit to play for i thought there's you know i'd definitely rather test a few clubs out at this time of the year than you going into the majors or going into a really important stretch so um, yeah, put put the driver and two fairway woods in the bag, and uh, the driver and five wood went really well. Uh, I think the three wood probably cost me a couple of shots last week, but um, driver and five wood were great. I'm going to do a little bit of work on the on the three wood over the the next few days leading to, leading into Dubai. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely noticed a, a difference in, in carry distance. I mean, whenever you know, I played with Bubba and Adam Scott over the first two days, and you know, I'd say. You know, a few weeks ago, I would have been pretty much level with those guys in terms of carry distance, and you know, I was I was flying it, I was flying it a good bit by them in China. So that was that was nice to see. Is that something I always ask the tour players when I get a chance to talk to them? Is that something you take pride in being able to fly it past the guy? I know that I know that low score is your priority, but does that does that give you a little extra boost to know that you can fly it by somebody? It, it shouldn't give you an extra boost because obviously that's it's not a long driving contest, but it does. I mean, if I'm honest, yes, it does. Um, I don't think it, you know, it, as a professional golfer and, you know, as you said, the lowest score is, is what's your priority. It shouldn't matter that you can fly it by someone, but it's still, it's always nice. No matter if you're one of the top ranked players of the, in the world or an amateur player, it's always nice to hit it by your playing partners. I think it's just a, you know, it's, it's a, a nice thing to have in your repertoire, I guess. But um, yeah, 
you know, look, it's it's nice, especially for me. Like I feel, you know, at, at five nine and one hundred and sixty five pounds. I mean, I'm obviously not the biggest guy out there, but to be able to to get it out there with the long guys, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, if you look at Bubba's six three and DJ's frame, like the leverage that they can get. It's almost not fair that you could that you could uh, keep up with them off the tee. But um, changing driver and woods, it kind of <clears throat> that seems like a rather easy to s- switch to make, relatively speaking, to other parts of uh, your equipment. Has anything regarding your timeline of potentially changing anything changed based on you putting these clubs in the bag now, or are you still sticking kind of with the same timeline? Yeah, I, uh, you know, honestly, I don't know if I have a timeline, really. I mean, it's more, you know, I, I wanted to try and get, you know, the, the rest of this season out of the way. Um, so, you know, finish off the finish off in Dubai, and then I'm actually going to come back to Dubai for a few days in December and test a few more things. So the thing now is, you know, I know that, you know, the Nike golf ball I'm playing, it works with my irons, my wedges, and the, the new wood that I've put into the bag. So, you know, the, the golf ball for me will be the big thing because it's the only piece of equipment you use for every single shot. Yeah. So I think that'll be the big thing. So I'll test a few golf balls out and, and hopefully, you know, I, I can still play the, the Nike ball for the foreseeable future, but there is going to come a day where, where I need to change just because, you know, they're not making them anymore. So um, I'd say wedges and irons are pretty much the the last of the, the priority just because I feel, you know, the manufacturers make irons and wedges that are so similar nowadays. Um, so I think the big thing for me is golf ball. And, and if I can find a golf ball that I'm comfortable with, then, you know, I, I think that would be a, a good place to start 2017. Okay. All right. Well, that's enough on equipment. Um, I, I know people are dying to talk about the Ryder Cup. I'm dying to talk about the Ryder Cup. But first, <laughs> I want to know what did you do after the Ryder Cup to debrief? Because you screamed your head off for like 72 straight hours. Like, did you just like go lay on a beach somewhere, or what? How did you spend your time directly after Ryder Cup? Uh, I spent my time directly after Ryder Cup wedding planning. Oh. I had three days of wedding meetings in Ireland. That was that was my. That was my decompression time from the Ryder Cup. <laughs> <laughs> so hardly a, not necessarily a major stress relief, I guess you could say. Uh, not really, but saying that um, it was fun. I mean, it, it you know it's it's nice to be involved in the process, I guess. But I, I definitely I definitely let Erica take the lead on most of that, and um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much you can do. I mean, I you know no matter. You know what you do after a Ryder Cup, especially a Ryder Cup like that, with you know emotions so high and everything that happened on that Sunday. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get away from it. You know, everyone's asking you about it, talking to you about it. Um, there's highlights still on TV. You're thinking about it. It's you know it is hard to get away from it. Um, but you know it was you know looking back on the week, it was a great experience. I'm you know it sucks to have lost, but uh, at the same time, it'll it'll make our team. Um, that much more motivated to, to get it back in France in a couple of years. Well, help me understand this because, and first of all, I, I love this about the Ryder Cup, but I just, it, it's an event you guys care about so much. You talk about so much. You can see the emotion in, in your play and in your reactions. And then afterwards, you have the ability to laugh about it, joke about it. You're, you know, kind of joking with the U.S. team about their celebration. You're leading a USA chant with the crowd on 18. 
Like if if Patrick Reed beats you on the last hole at the Masters, you're not laughing it up with him afterwards. But why can the in the Ryder Cup can you make that transition so quickly and to say, um, you know, we had a great event that we care a lot about winning, but at the end of the day, we're just out there having fun. How is that? How does that this event get so much out of you competitively? Yet afterwards, you can laugh and smile about it. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I think the the answer for the you know about the competitiveness bit is is easy because um, you know you're there, you're you're you know you're playing for something bigger than yourself. You know, I think that's the big thing. You know, you're playing for your teammates, you're playing for you know your continent, your country. Uh, you know, the captain, the vice captains. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that you don't want to let down. Um, so I think that's where the competitiveness comes from. Um, especially, you know, for me anyway, you know, and I struggled with that a little bit with my first two Ryder Cups. I, I felt the pressure of having to perform for the team, uh, and that made my play a little bit tentative, and, and I sort of went into my shell a little bit, and I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly play my best golf the first two Ryder Cups that I played, but I've grown more comfortable with that role over the years, and, um, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things I, I, I feel now I'm, I'm one of the leaders of, of of the European team and I, I want to stand up and, and lead by example. So that's where that competitiveness comes from. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, for example, the, the European press conference afterwards when, um, you know, Danny made a couple of very, very funny comments and we're all, you know, we're in good spirits because we are a team, you know, we, we, we went there as a team and we leave as a team and it's, you know, we're never going to, Throw anyone under the bus. We're never going to blame anyone. You know, we all tried our best. We all played our hearts out, and at the end of the week, it wasn't good enough. And you know, I think we're we're big enough uh, to acknowledge that and and you know say to the U.S. team, look, they they were better that week, and um, we but we still, you know, the thing is like the Ryder Cup. You you know you you try your best, and you you know you it doesn't quite come off, and you lose, but you still have a great week. I mean, you know, the memories that I'll have from all my Ryder Cups, but especially that one, you know, it's the first one that I've been a part of a losing team, but, you know, the memories and the, you know, the fun that you have along the way, you know, th- those are the memories that you're going to have for the rest of your career. Yeah, that, that, the press conference afterwards did stick out to me, just like for the stark contrast, I know it's different scenarios, the contrast to the 2014 U.S. press conference, uh, to what you guys put forth, it was just, I, I kind of like, I looked at it and it just kind of made sense to me why you guys win a lot. I mean, there was no... Um, it was just kind of like you know, you know what? They had the better team, and we still had fun, and we're still joking with each other. And it, it just did. I, I made the joke. I was like, I don't think, I don't think they know they lost. Like it didn't really seem like you guys even like. Uh, it didn't seem like it emotionally affected you to have lost. I mean, I'm sure it did, no, but the way you I, carried yourselves. It, it, yeah, it did. It was weird because it was like, I think for us, it was, you know. Yeah, we of course we lost, but we looked at the U.S. team and we were sort of thinking, like, especially the fans. Like, I, I was thinking, you know, you know, they're going to be so excited. Their team's won this thing for the first time in you know eight years or whatever it is. And and but it just it seemed like once they won, the, the whole place went sort of quiet. Right. <laughs> and it was it was weird. It was like I was you know, and that's why that's why I was the one that was like you know celebrating. Like I was like USA, like go and <laughs> chant the way you've been chanting for the last three days. Your team's just won. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they go quiet. I just, I didn't understand. For me, you know, we, we didn't understand that we were like, you know, it, you know, you can't come and 
chant and shout the way you have for the last three days and not celebrate when you win. That's I said the same exact thing. I had to, I'm wondering if they just spent too much energy screaming their heads off for the first three days and were it, it was it, that's what made me upset. It felt like they were more uh, there to taunt you guys, to yell things at you guys than they were to root on the team to victory at the end of the day. It was, I think, the 18th hole stadium. It doesn't really set up that great for the fans around the green, maybe. That's the only real excuse I can make for it. Like, if they, yeah. if they had yeah. closed it at 16, I think things would have been a little bit different. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, the 18th wasn't the, the best amphitheater to, to celebrate, but I just... I don't know. It was. It was just. It was a. It was just. It was quite muted at the end, and I, I was expecting something different. And I don't know. I mean, it was. You know. I, yeah. It was. It was strange because, you know, as I said at the end of the day, you, you know, I'm fine with people coming and shouting stuff at me for three days and whatever. I, I tried to take it all in my stride, and it was good fun. And I know that they're just trying to help their team, but you know, if you're going to do that for three days, at least at least cheer them on when they win. So, but anyways, it, it is what it is. And, um, you know, it was, it was a great three days. And as I said, America or the U S team were definitely the, the deserved winners. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can, we can get them back in France. Do you, how do you feel like the main reaction of the fans has been towards you since then? Like, do you feel like you have more or less fans than you did at the start of that week? Maybe you haven't gotten the full experience yet just because you haven't played an event in the U.S. since then. But how do you feel like the fans from, like, from the U.S. side walked away from that? Or how have you felt that so far? Um, I think they reacted well to it. Uh, every, everyone that I've spoken to, um, they keep saying the same thing. You know, we never... We've never seen you like that before. We've never, you know, it was it was great to see. It was real passion and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, I think I think it's been taken quite well. I don't know if that means I've got more or less fans than than I did. I mean, I think if if anything, people might uh, admire or respect my competitiveness a little bit more mm-hmm. after that week. I don't know, um, but. You know, it's been it's been hugely hugely positive. Even though, you know, we we didn't get the win, and I wasn't a part of a, a winning team uh, individually. I've I've had a lot of compliments, which is which is nice. Yeah, I, I I'm asking that just because I I know in like my corner of the internet and like my friends, uh, you have if even if it wasn't possible, even more fans or people love you even more just because exactly what you said that competitive spirit, that emotion, and just the playfulness of it too, and like. I don't know, and, and, and I'm dying to ask, like, how in the midst of all of that competition, um, Saturday afternoon round, you take the time and you have the wherewithal and self-awareness to come up to me in the middle of the round and troll me over the Dustin Johnson Brooks <laughs> Kepka pairing that I wanted that you were three up on. How does that happen in the middle of the Ryder Cup? I mean, I think when you get to know me a bit better, that's my—that's <laughs> me. That's what I do. Um, I—I I, am very—I am very aware of my surroundings. So, like, obviously, I noticed you following our group. I—I I knew that you know there were so many people that wanted this Brooks and, and Dustin pairing, and um, I remember you know saying to. Uh, I remember saying to Thomas Peters, um, my partner, I said, just keep hitting it hard and keep hitting it straight because, like, I swear, 
the first five holes of that match, it was like a long driving contest. Like we weren't caring where it was going. We were just trying to hit it as hard as we could. And uh, I said, if we can keep hitting it hard and keep hitting it straight, those boys will keep trying to hit it harder and harder and they'll start to go left on them. And that's sort of, that's always been my, that's always been my thing. I, I feel like if, if I'm driving it really well and I'm playing with a long hitter and we're, you know, there's always that little bit of ego where you start to hit it harder and harder. The, the, the harder, you know, the best players in the world hit it, the tendency is that it, it starts to go left on them. And, and that's sort of what started to happen. And um, we just tried to go with that game plan and, and, and it worked. But um, yeah, look, I, you know, I, I, I wanted that match. You know, and as a fan of golf, it was, you know, it was cool to see Brooks and Dustin in a Ryder Cup pairing. I think it's awesome. Yeah. You know, so if I, if I was in your position and I wasn't playing in the in the thing, I would have wanted to go out and watch that match as well. So, you know, I, I know that I'm a part of a match that people are excited about and people want to watch. And, you know, that's a pretty cool thing for me as well. <clears throat> would you say overall, um, well, I'd like you to kind of rank the, some of the things that happened during the week f- from the crowd and where they fall on the spectrum of like, all right, I'm fine with this, this is cool, and this is like taking it too far. Like, For instance, uh, a lot of people talk about cheering after poor European shots. Um, where does that fall on the spectrum? Or like, what, what is your reaction to it? What is your teammates' reaction to that? And then kind of some of the examples of some things that you thought just went too far, where the fans were really crossing the line. Because I know it did happen, and I'm obviously on the American side. I definitely think that lines were crossed out there. But what are the main things that you guys think are the, the issue or the problem that should be dealt with before in the next Ryder Cup? Yeah, I think um, I have no – honestly, I have no problem with the fans cheering after the European team, someone in the European team hit a bad shot because it, that happens in Europe. Right. You know, that's not that's not something that just happens in the U.S. That's something, you know, if, if you know, like if, a, you know, American misses a putt um, in Europe, the crowd, of course the crowd are going to cheer if Europe are going to win the hole. If, you know, that's going to happen. So I don't think that anyone should have a problem with that. I think where, where the problem lies is, and even the, even the taunting and stuff like, you know, even if you're walking up the fairway and, and someone says, McElroy, you suck, or whatever it may be, that's totally fine. But then whenever it starts to get personal, whenever there's like these little personal attacks that start to come from the crowd, uh, that's where it gets a little bit too far, I think. Yeah. What is, like, what, would, what was your, is your lasting memory of the whole week to you? Like, what is the main thing you take away from that? Not necessarily from a crowd. Um, not necessarily from a crowd perspective. Just your overall from the whole Ryder Cup. I loved it. I mean, I, I even though we were part of the losing team, I think the team camaraderie on our European team this year was the best it's ever been. You know, so I think we. I, I had such an enjoyable week. I got to know a lot of the rookies much much better, um, and those rookies will be on our Ryder Cup team again. Um, and that's my overriding. You know, memories of the week. I, I I thoroughly enjoyed myself. There was a great team spirit, a great team atmosphere, and I got to know a lot of the guys much better, which I was really happy about. And um, hopefully, that will stand the team in good stead going forward. I don't want to get you in too much trouble by asking this, but I think uh, it's a relevant question considering the European Tour rules for qualifying for the Ryder Cup team and the fact that Paul Casey is playing some of the best golf on the planet, and he was uneligible to be on the team. 
Do you think there will yeah. be any changes to the process in the future, or do you think there should be? Two separate questions, I think. Do you, uh, do you have any input on what, what you think of? Because I, I understand the European Tour running the Ryder Cup team and that they want the European Tour members to play on that team, but um, do, looking at it competitively going forward, do you think there can or should be changes to it? Uh, I think there can be changes to it, and I think there should be changes to it. Um, Honestly, it should be it should be the twelve best players from Europe versus the twelve best players from the United States. And it, you know, for me, there shouldn't be anything to do with membership of tours or you know, and and even so much you know, just to simplify the process. And I know it wouldn't make it as exciting, or whatever. But you know, I've had an idea where you just take the best twelve in the world rankings from the U.S. and the best twelve in the world rankings and from Europe and, and you go and you play. Yeah. And I know that that isn't as exciting in terms of captain's picks and qualifying processes and everything else. But, you know, if, if we're trying to make it the fairest way for, for the best 12 to make each team, you know, that, I think that's the way to go. I mean, it's so, you know, when you have, and I know people have different opinions on Bubba, but when you have the seventh ranked, ranked golfer in the world at the time, not getting a pick on the U S Ryder cup team, there's, I I felt a little bit uneasy with that because you know you're you're basically saying okay this guy is you know he's a good enough player but you know he, you we don't want him on the team it's just sort of it's it's a hard it's a it's a difficult one but uh, I think yeah I think there's a few things that need to change especially on the European side because you know to have a guy like Paul Casey not on our team when he is playing some of the best golf in the world right now um, you know it definitely hurt us yeah. I think I think that's fair what you're saying. I think uh, um, I'm just curious to get your thoughts. I, I would poke a, a hole in the official using the official World Golf Rankings just because I think they can be a bit sticky. Meaning, like your results from the past can really weigh. And you, uh, I'm saying you don't have to be it's hot. Not, yeah, it's not it, it's not as recent as, right. as you would want it to be. Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I get that. And that and that you know Bubba hadn't had a top ten since March or something leading into that. And, and a lot of people were saying, no, you have the seventh ranked player. I do totally understand that. Um, I I definitely think there are flaws in both sides on how you know how you qualify guys. But I, I when you cut down to it, it really should be as simple as what you said: twelve best players in Europe, twelve best players on the U.S. team. Because this isn't just a Paul Casey issue. I think I don't know what. Like John Rahm's plans are for playing the European Tour and whatnot, but it could definitely be more than. And Russell Knox also had this issue. Um, it could be something yeah. you know down the road that could materially affect who who makes up this team. And when it comes down to it, I think uh, camaraderie is obviously important, but the talent of your players. Not saying you guys didn't have enough talent on your team, and I know you don't want to put down any of the guys that were on your team, but uh, going forward, it can definitely affect who those twelve guys are. So it's. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if something changes, but you do at the same time like. You guys do play more European Tour events because you know this is a rule, and I, I know that they don't want. It's probably not fair to hold you hostage in that way, but um, I know that at least I would imagine at least some players are motivated to play more events in Europe because of this rule. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, like, I, I think every tour has to look out for what's best for them. Like, you know, the PGA Tour coming with this rule this year, where if you haven't played an event in the last five years you know, you have to stick one on your schedule. So that's what I'm going to do this year. I, I have to play an event that I've, I've never played before. Um, and a lot of guys have to do that just because, you know, and, and I understand that from the PGA Tour's perspective and, and providing, you know, um, value for their sponsors. And you, you don't want a, a title sponsor 
you know, you know, sponsoring a tournament, and you know, he doesn't get any of the best players in the world for the last you know five years. So I I get that, um, but at the same time, you know, our minimum event uh, number on the PGA Tour is fifteen, whereas it's only well, it's thirteen in Europe or five outside of the majors and WGCs. So you know, five golf tournaments outside of those isn't. I don't think it's a huge push, um, but some people might feel differently, especially like. You know, Paul Casey's in a very different situation now than he was in a few years ago, or he will be in a few years going forward. He's got a little boy that um, he wants to spend so much time with and see growing up. But whenever his kid starts to go to school and starts to, you know, have friends and, and whatever, you know, Paul can maybe play a little bit more in Europe because you know he, he doesn't need to be home as often. He doesn't need to be be there every single you know weekend or whatever it may be. So. Um, you know, these things are fluid and they change and they, you know, it really just depends on where a person is in his life. And, you know, I can, you know, I can see myself, you know, if I, you know, base myself in, in the States full time from, you know, a year or two down the line, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't, I'd never go and back and support the European Tour, but it, it would start to become more difficult for me to go and play those events or whatever, but at the same time, you know, when you think about it, five five events, um, especially if you have to play your home open anyway to be a member of the tour, um, which I'm involved in personally, you know, I think it, it, it's not that big a stretch to play another four after that. And I think people um, may not have the full respect for what, you know, when you have to cross oceans that many times, and you may not be the best example of this because you're younger and you are in, in you know, in a different kind of physical shape than a lot of players on tour, but it can, it can wear on you, especially when you consider where the European tour plays a lot of events. It's not like a short jaunt across the ocean and go play in Scotland a lot of the time. I mean, it's South Africa, yeah. it's Thailand, it's all over the place, so... Um, it is, it is, it is tough, and I think I'm not sure what the best answer is. And I know that even in the past year, you know, there was problems with the. I think it was the French Open versus the Bridgestone. Was that the same time yeah, this year? Akron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you know, puts you guys. I'm sure you're kind of on pins and needles a little bit every every year when the schedule comes out, looking at how this how the schedules are going to you know cross over. Am I going to have to fly 18 hours between events and whatnot? So I don't know what the best answer is, but I know it's going to be different every single year, and they can try to improve it as much as they can every single year. But um, finding that balance is going to be quite challenging. Um, yeah, for sure. All right, I want to transition a bit off uh, Ryder Cup scheduling and whatnot. Uh, I want to talk a bit more broad, a couple questions. And the, f- the first one I want to ask is I-, I want to know for you on a daily basis and how- the best way you'd answer, how famous are you? Like when, you, when you're walking around the streets of Dubai or you're walking around in Florida, you go out to eat, how often are you recognized, bothered, and how famous do you feel when you walk the streets normally? Um... Yeah, I mean, pretty famous. Um, I don't, I don't. It's a difficult one for me to answer. I mean, yes, I mean, there's, I, I, anytime I go out to eat, I get recognized. Anytime I, I go somewhere, I, I take a picture with someone. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to whether it's Dubai or Florida or uh, at home or wherever it may be. Yeah, it's. Sometimes it's hard to, to get away from it. Dubai is fine. I mean, because you you know you get recognized by the expats here, yeah. um, and there's obviously a lot of them. But I think one of the places that I don't get not recognized as much, but I don't get bothered as much, 
and bothered isn't the right word. I hate using the word bothered, yeah. but um, it's, it's Florida because people are so used to seeing so many guys down there, whether it's Tiger or Michael Jordan or uh, a lot of the PGA Tour players or whoever else. I mean, they're just so used to seeing the guys around that um, it's sort of become normal, which which I guess is a nice thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I expected. I just didn't know... Because um, I think most PGA Tour guys can walk around and not be recognized for the most part. You know, hats over their head. I think that's different for somebody like yourself who has won, you know, four major titles and has been at the forefront of the game. But, uh, like, if you look back at, like, an old picture of you, like, you know, two, 22 years old, you, all the different gear, you got the hair, you've got uh, your body was a, little, was a little bit different shape. Like what? When you look back at the old you, what do you? Uh, it's kind of like looking at old pictures. Just what? What would you? What? What would you tell that guy? What do you think of when you see that old, that old version of yourself? Um. Yeah. There's. There's definitely a few. You know. I, I cringe a little bit at some <laughs> of the older stuff. That's for sure. Um. I think one of the big things is I would have definitely listened to my parents more. Okay. Especially my dad. When my dad's in, get a haircut tidy yourself up blah 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 blah. and I was like no I want to do my own thing and I want to be this sort of independent and whatever and um but yeah I mean I look back and but it's it's a you know I I look back on all these things and okay you can look at yourself in terms of appearance and cringe a little bit and be oh I wish I had have cut my hair or worn something different or whatever but you know I, I look back and and think about where I've come from to where I am today and the journey that I've been on and the um, everything that's went on in my life, um, it's, you know, it's, it's been a huge learning process from this naive 18 year old kid turning pro and getting his European tour card to, you know, it's going to be my 10th year on tour next year and 10 years later being where I am and, and learning so much more about the world and about myself. And, um, you know, so I wouldn't change any of it because I feel like everything that's happened from that point until today has, has made me what I am. And, I feel like I've 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 turned out okay, and I've I've been successful on the golf course, and um, you know started to do some really good things away from the golf course as well, and um, you know all those experiences that I had uh, at the start of of my career and even before that um, have led to this point. So, you know, my my fiance Erica has a really good saying. She says it's all part of the journey. Yeah, and I sort of that's a that's a good mantra to have. Yeah, I, I I think it's hard to look back at the past and say you want to necessarily change something about your past when if you're happy with the current version of yourself, that's part of the path that, that took you to where you currently are. Um, so what? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think uh, I've read somewhere that both of your parents worked multiple jobs growing up. Is that is that accurate to say that as part of raising you? Uh, it, it, my dad worked multiple jobs and yeah. my mom worked night shifts. Night shifts, so okay. They, they used to refer to themselves as passing ships in the night. They sort of <laughs> saw each other for brief periods during the day whenever, you know, dad came home to go somewhere else or mom was, yeah, it was, you know, and, and when you're that young, you, you don't, I mean, you don't understand, you don't realize the sacrifices that they're making um, because all they wanted to do was provide for their only son and, and give him the best life possible and, you don't realize that they're doing that when you're when you're young and and but you, you you learn to you know you realize that and and you start to speak to you know as you get older and wiser and and you know as I just said you know you know more about the world you you, you sort of you realize that that's not normal and I remember 
you know, one of the things my mum and dad always say to me now is I used to say to them when I was a kid, couldn't we just be like a normal family? You know, I always say, can we not just be like a normal family? Can we not just do normal things? Or And, you know, it, it's, again, it's all part of the journey. And, you know, if it wasn't for them doing that, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So um, they deserve everything they get in life. And, you know, I, I try to look after them as much as I can um, uh-huh. because they, they've obviously, you know, put everything into into at least giving me an opportunity to, to try to become what what I have become and how, how much would you would, would you say that their work ethic their their you know the what they went through to you know raise you and whatnot how, how much does that contribute to how your work ethic turned out I think most people would say you're one of the hardest working guys out there both from a physical and golf standpoint did that did how, how much influence did their hard work have on you in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I think it did. I think I'm just wired that way, and I yeah. think, um, you know, my my mom and dad are very different. My dad's very open and very uh, sort of not carefree, but, like, he, you know, everyone he meets, he has a laugh and a joke with, where my mom is a bit more reserved. So I like to think that I've... I like to think that I've sort of taken the best from both of them. Um <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I my dad used to love hitting golf balls. I mean, that was his, it was almost just like a hobby to him. So I've never, like, I've never felt like going and practicing on a driving range or chipping or putting or going in the gym. I never feel like that's hard work or work ethic because it's always been fun for me. Yeah. It's always just been what I've done. You know, so, um, yes, you you put in the hours and you, you make some sacrifices along the way. But, I mean, um my my caddy JP always says to me, he goes, "We'd be screwed if we had to work for a living." <laughs> so, oh, that's a good way to look at it. That's a really good way to look at yeah. it. Um, do you, I, this is a, this is a, something I try to point out as often as I can, and I think you would know my answer to this question. Do you think people out there forget, mostly in the media? Do you think people forget how many majors four majors is to have won? Yes. <laughs> 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 it's it's hard for me because it's um everything nowadays and it's not just it's not just golf it's 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 sports media it's it's just it's the culture that we live in it's 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 so based on recency and what have you done for me lately and you know it's you know there's been since i've since i started to win majors there's probably been about 10 different eras in golf um <laughs> It, and it, it does, it bugs me because you know, people don't give players the time to develop and become what they want them to be. It's just, it's so, you know, they need to have patience with it. And, you know, generations and eras are built up over decades of playing against each other and, you know, not over two seasons. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that I, I struggle with a little bit because, you know, and I... And it, not not just on me, but I think with you know Jordan winning two majors in fifteen, and it, it, it's it's totally unfair because you know, they build you up so much, and then you know Jordan hasn't had a bad season this year, but you know he he didn't win a major, and okay he he did what he did at Augusta, but you know everyone's asking well, you know, what's wrong with Jordan, and then whenever he wins again, they'll say he's back. Like no, he's not. He's never gone. He's, never he's not left. been anywhere. He's, you know, and that's the thing that gets me. You know, if I, you know, when I won the FedEx Cup or I, I did whatever, 
you know, they say, oh, Rory's back. I'm like, I'm, I'm not back. I've been playing like this. I, you know, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's just, it's hard to put your point across sometimes when you, when you try to elaborate on how difficult it is to win on tour and, and how much competition there is out there. And, and I think the one thing for me, and I don't want to put anyone down, but for example, I've, I've won four majors and there's, there's guys that have, you know, great players in this generation that have won one, for example, mm-hmm. the likes of DJ and Jason Day and whatever, and and they are possibly and probably going to win more. But the one thing that I like to say is, you know, if, if, if they win three more majors, they get to me. Right. If I win three more majors, I get to Arnold Palmer. <laughs> you know, so that's sort of how I look at it a little bit. And I don't like, I, I don't want to, blow my own trumpet I don't want to put them down at all but I guess that's just the way I see it I think that that's totally fair and exactly to my point where I feel like um, once you've done something and winning four majors it's it's a forward-looking prognosis and it's supposed to mean all right this is what's next like he should win six more of these and it's like well wait a second here like Phil's entire career fantastic hall of fame career second best player of an entire generation, maybe one of the top 10, 12 players of all time, he's won five of them total. You're one short of that at the age of 27. Um, and Phil didn't win his first one until age 33. And it's just, it's just like this formula that, I mean, just think of it from a, from a common sense standpoint. Only one guy can win the Masters every year. And then, you know, there's five, six, seven elite players that we have to answer the question, why isn't so-and-so winning? It's like, You've played in seven majors since you last won one, and people still want to. Or do you feel like I guess people are still on you, like on you at the end of a season more if you haven't won a major than the seasons you have won one? Yeah, of course, but I think that's the whole, and, I, and that's not. I think that's a narrative that's being created by the players as well, and that's not. I think the players are partly to blame for that because I've went, I've said in press conferences before, uh, the only way it's going to be a great year if I win a major, so that yeah. if I don't win one. You know, the media have every right to say, well, it hasn't been a great year, he hasn't won a major. So um, I think the players are partly to, to blame for that as well. The majors have become such a, you know, the majors in the Ryder Cup are the, the five biggest golf tournaments that we, you know, the five biggest tournaments in golf. And and we, we've we've put them up on this pedestal so much that it's it's almost the the rest of the, the rest of the stuff becomes a little bit irrelevant and, and it shouldn't be because, you know, there's some great golf tournaments out there that are played on great golf courses that have the strongest fields in golf. But I think just because of where we've put the majors in comparison to everything else, they, they get belittled a little bit. And, and I, you know, I, I feel partly to blame for that because of how much importance I put on majors, but you know, people have to realize that you know, there's still some great golf tournaments out there and that they're very hard to win. Yeah, I mean, do you feel, I think you may have just answered that, but do you feel internally, even if it's like, a, let's say, a big WGC event, all the best players in the world, huge prize pool, do you feel, in, do you approach the weeks differently than you do like a PGA Championship week? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it just feels, I mean, you've been at majors, you, you, you feel the difference. Yeah. Like there's something in the air, it just feels different. It's it's, I don't know if it's just because you know that there's only four of them a year or, or whatever it is. But it's um, yeah, you build them up so much, and, and they're the four, you know, they're the four main things in your on your calendar each and every year. And 
you know, you're trying to go there with your game in the best possible shape and you know almost almost over trying and trying a bit too hard for them at times and you know I, you know there's some sometimes I think that maybe I should just approach majors like I approach some of the other tour events you know arriving on a Tuesday night play a few holes on Wednesday mm. and, and play on Thursday sometimes I think that's nearly the the best way for me to approach these things because the more you build it up in, the, in your head the more you start to think about it and the more you know different scenarios start to come into your head and you know all of a sudden you're getting anxious you're getting nervous and you know that's obviously not a good thing are you are you already at this point in your career weary of the annual build up to Augusta, the eight month layoff in majors, going up to the one major that you haven't won to this point? Is it is that is that narrative process is that wearing on you at this point? Or are you kind of like uh, brush it off at this point? Um, I, I try to brush it off as much as I can, but it definitely it, it wears on you. You know, I, I you know, this is going to be my um. It's going to be my third year going into Augusta, knowing that if I win, I, I get the career Grand Slam, and um, I, I try my best to, to avoid all the hype and all the. I mean, I, I do zero media the week leading up to Augusta. You know, you know, magazines are wanting me to you know be on the cover, and I'm just like, no, I, I don't want that. I don't want the. I don't want the hype. I don't want the the spotlight. I, I sort of want to shy away from it a little bit because. I know how much of a big week it is, and, and any sort of distraction to me, I feel will, you know, it could cost me the chance of, of doing what I want to do. So um, I, I try to delay low the week leading up to Augusta and, and just, you know, prepare as best I can and try to fly under the radar, even though that's that's not entirely possible at this point in my career. But um, I, I try to think that I can anyway. Sprinkle in a couple missed cuts right before April, and I think yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. lower, lower the expectations. But um, <laughs> when you think about Augusta, like what's a shot out there that like really fits your eye, or like what is like one of your favorite shots to play of all of all the holes out there at Augusta? Um, favorite shot to play is mm, probably the second shot into thirteen. Yep. Okay. I think a lot of guys will say that, but um, I think you know the. The ball's above your feet. You're hitting the mid iron in, you know. So it's it's you know it's going to draw into that sort of left to, left to right sloping green. It 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 just it looks so inviting. Like it just like it you know it's you know it's definitely a hole where you think and you're thinking you can make eagle, but definitely birdie. Um, but there's so many holes at Augusta where you know you're look you're looking forward to hitting your next shot. I think that's the thing. You're excited to hit your next shot just because. You've seen it so many times on TV, and you know where the pin position is. You know exactly what the ball is going to do when it hits the green. And uh, I, I think it would be it would be cool if, if we could go back to to regular spots on the schedule like that a little bit more often. Um, like I, I like I'd love if the if the Open Championship was played at St Andrews every year. Yeah, and you know just because people get to know the place so well, and like that's. That's one of the great things about Augusta is you don't, you know, you, you don't have to have been there to know the golf course and, and and know the back nine on Sunday and I think that's what creates a lot of excitement about it. I totally agree. That's what makes the Masters, I think, the most special of all the majors. You know, you're going back to the same course, whereas 
you know, our memories of the U.S. Open or, you know, these courses you play once every nine years or so, it's, it's hard to really, um, for a lot of these tournaments, really have like a true identity. You know, it's such a different test. And the story of the yeah. week ends up being the golf course more than it is like the championship at times. I think uh, that can be really distracting. Is there, is there a, whole, a shot at Augusta that you just like not, I don't want to say dread or fear or just one that really <laughs> doesn't fit your eye? Um, one that really doesn't fit my eye. Well, I, and I hope it doesn't. You don't answer it, and then like you make like a seven on it this year when you, with a lead coming yeah, down I know, the street. Exactly. <laughs> um, I know that's I'm what's gonna, cool. I'm gonna. Say, I think I played the fourth and the eleventh holes in a combined nine over this year at Augusta. So, uh, yeah, I'd say, yeah, I'd say second, second shot into eleven. Yeah. Is, I, I'd say every. You know, I think anyone would be lying if they said they felt totally comfortable over that second shot. Do you think, um, oh man, this, this could get you in trouble. Do you, do you think that there are, if you could make any changes to Augusta, what kind of changes do you think that, and that's a course they're tinkering with all the time, and I know a lot of people, when, when people even suggest changing Augusta, they cringe, and they, but over history, it's been one of the most changed courses ever. Looking forward, as, as technology continues to evolve, do you foresee any changes that they're going to make? And if you were you know, in charge of some of that, uh, what kind of changes would you think make you would make to that golf course? Yeah, I mean, uh, I I know of one that they're contemplating on. I know they've bought a lot of land, sort of behind the behind the fifth tee box. Um, so I, I think I wouldn't be surprised in the years to come and and seeing that hole play a little bit differently, more of a straightaway tee shot, but a little bit longer. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that. You know, lengthening 13 would be a good thing um, because it would, you know, I know a lot of longer guys don't like to hit driver off that tee anyway. So, and, you know, it's a, you know, it's not much of a par five if you can't hit driver off the tee. Um, so lengthening 13 and, and making it where, you know, guys are having to go in there with a long iron again is, is something that uh, would be cool to see. Um but apart from that, I think they get it. I think they they get it spot on every year in terms of setting it up. It's always a, it's always a, a fair but tough test. Um, you know, a good a good winning score usually wins whether it's in the region of ten to twelve under par. Um, so I, I think they do a good job with the golf course. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. You're safe there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll get my invite next year. <laughs> um, what is, when you, and I, and I don't mean uh, literally from the world rankings, and I don't mean like, I know there's events you walk into where there's another player that's hotter, like Jason Day is obviously the number one ranked player in the world. He won you know six events in whatever span of period that time is. He's, let's, say, he's, let's say he's the hottest golfer in the world going into a particular event. But when you walk onto the grounds of a tournament, regardless of who's the hottest and whatnot, do you feel like you are the best player in the world or that week, no matter what, no matter how hot you are, how hot anyone else is, do you feel like you're the best player in the world? Um, it really depends. I mean, I, I feel like I'd like to believe it, yes. I'd like to believe every time I walked on the property at a PGA Tour event, I felt like I was the best player in the world. But, you know, like confidence is such a fickle thing that, there, there, yes, there's certainly weeks where I feel like I'm unbeatable. But then there's there's weeks where 
you don't feel that way. And I think that, you know, those are the weeks that you have to, you know, those are the important weeks that you have to try and fight through and, and manage your game as best you can. And, um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, yeah, I, I, I do believe that I'm the best player in the world. Um, and I, I feel like I have the record over the past five or six years to, to back that up. But I, I don't necessarily feel like I am every single time I tee it up. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Along those same lines, what is one, if you could like trade something, ability of yours, um, and swap it out for any one skill that another player has, what would you swap out? Like, I want that guy, you wouldn't pick this because you're probably the best driver on tour, like saying, I want to drive it like Bubba does, or I want to do that. What would you choose from any other player on tour? Uh, I would choose, um, i go Steve Stricker's wedge game. Steve Stricker's wedge game, you swap. Okay. He's still got yeah, it? Still I, got it? I, I, yeah, I mean, he's, he's one of the best wedge players I've ever seen. And I feel like I give myself enough wedges if I can drive it well that you put Steve in those spots, he's, he's going to hit it pretty close for you. So um, it's, it's one thing in my game I feel like I still need to work on a little bit. If, if, if my wedge game got a little bit better, I think I'd be a little bit more efficient and, and take advantage of some of the drives that I hit. Um, so, yeah, that would be it. I mean, we saw the, what's his first year Dustin Johnson said he's ever practiced his wedge game, and look at what kind of season he had this it's, time around. It's scary. <laughs> is there anything you're changing in that part, you want to look to change in that part of the process, how you, how you practice your wedges, or, I mean, is it just something you're always conscious of that you'd like to play your wedges better? Yeah, I think it's something, I mean, you know, looking at DJ, he's definitely shallowed out his wedges. You know, he, he doesn't take as much of a divot as he used to do. Um, and I think that's something that, that I need to try and work on. I think you get a much more consistent, well, much more consistent flight, which gets you much more consistent numbers and distances. Um, and that's something that you know I've I've tried to work on, but something I need to continue to work on if I can shallow out my wedges and and not take too big a divot and, and get steep on them. You know, it'll, it'll make everything just that bit more consistent. All right. Well, I'll get you out of here on this because I could keep you probably for another hour if I had my way. But uh, you've been nice <laughs> enough to spend an hour of my time. But uh, of all everything you've accomplished in your career so far, and there's still a lot to go. But what's what's the what is the accomplishment that you would say you're most proud of in all of your career? Uh, I would have said if I'd beaten Patrick Reed a couple of weeks ago, it would have been my Ryder Cup singles record. But that's gone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think my Open Championship, you know, the Open is, is for me, being from where I'm from, it's, it's you know, arguably the biggest tournament, um, you know, and, and dreaming of winning it as a kid and watching, you know, the likes of, you know, Seve and Faldo and Norman and then obviously Tiger, um, you know, over the years, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it, you know, I... You know, to win an Open Championship and to, to get your hands on a Claret Jug is pretty cool. And um, you know, I'll, I'll always remember the moment. You know, my that's the only major win that my mother's been at, oh. and remember when she came onto the green, and it was just such a cool moment. So, uh, definitely my proudest and my my most memorable achievement to date. Well, I, I I can tell I can't imagine how excited you are for the hype train for Portrush, and uh, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> knowing how it's, much that would mean to you. Oh, it's got. I mean, it's it's awesome. I think you know it. 
I was actually speaking to a friend about it the other day. It's, you know, to have an opportunity to win a major championship, an open championship at home in front of home fans. I mean, you saw what it was like at the Irish Open this year a little bit and, and how much it meant to me. But if I were able to win an open championship there, uh, I, I, I could retire the next day and be very happy. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll get you out of here actually on a really light one. Who's the most fun guy out there on tour to play with, like from a conversational standpoint? Like you see, oh, I'm paired with this guy today. We're going to have a good time. Who's, who's the guy, that you, your go-to guy in that regard? Um, I, look at as, as, I look at it as pairings because the, the player and the caddy always have to have a good dynamic. I think that's one of the – I have – like I have a lot of fun with a lot of the Euros. Um, like I, I always get, I love getting paired with Polder and Terry because they're just so funny. They're like a, they're like a double act. They're just, they're, they're funny. Um, so those are two good guys to play with, or you know, Polter to play with, and obviously with Terry. Um, and then I'm trying to think. On a lot of the younger guys are good. I mean, um, Jordan, uh, Justin Thomas. I like, I like getting paired with Justin, but it, it turns into. I feel like we both lose concentration a little bit when we get paired together. <laughs> well, he definitely did. He definitely did at the yeah. memorial. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, JT definitely. Um, yeah, that driver he hit off 14. That was funny. Um, <laughs> by the way, I love that. I love that tweet the, um, when he was hitting driver off the deck in Malaysia and then the one from Tampa this year. That was so funny. He, uh, he, that was, that was hilarious. What's funny is people don't know that, like, we're friends and we get along. And, like, he's sending me, like, screenshots of people, like, it's commenting on Instagram, like, hey, don't worry about those guys, man. You're fine. Like, <laughs> screw those guys. <laughs> Keep hitting driver off the deck. Yeah. <laughs> Keep being you. It's awesome. No, even my mom was like, I can't tell. Are you fighting with Justin Thomas? I'm like, no, mom. Like, he's in on the joke. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> oh, it was too funny. So. Yeah, it was too funny. All right, Roy, thank you for an hour of your time, man. This has been much appreciated and highly anticipated. Um, and uh, best of luck with the rest of the race to Dubai, um, your off season if you really have one. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, just can't thank you enough for coming on, man. And I uh, would love to do it again sometime. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's, it's been a blast. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. Later. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect.